Just a word of warning about this episode. One of my co-hosts had some major microphone issues, so he's very blown out. I did my best to fix this, but the quality is not up to snuff. Thanks for your patience, and I hope you enjoy this discussion of Josie and the Pussycats and Spice World. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Turn it off. For every band, there is a moment when they know they have made it. For one band, this is not that moment. Thank you. Thank you, guys. You're a great crowd. Okay, girls, we need the lane now. And your shoes. They were three small-town girls with big-time dreams. Who's a rock star? I am. Who wanted to share their music with the world. We can't sit around here waiting for it to happen. We are musicians. We should be out there playing music. We do play. Nobody believed in them. You know, you suck. <laughs> but they believed in themselves. We're special. Yeah, special Ed. <laughs> now, in a world of tough competition... That is so sad. Fate is giving the Pussycats the chance of a lifetime. We'd love for you to sign with Mega Records. How am I going to pull this off? I'm a girl from Riverdale. I'm not a rock star. you got to believe in yourself. Things are finally going their way. But between the mania... Is that Joseph? They're going to be huge. The managers. We decide everything. What's hot and what's not. Welcome to your party. Who else thinks that Fiona's a freak? And the media. We're going to be on TRL. Mm -hmm. yeah! This may be the toughest gig they've ever played. Have you noticed that everything has sort of become all about Josie? Josie. 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 Been around. I made you a rock star. Tell me you don't love that. Forget it. I never liked you. No matter what happens, we will always be friends first. Are you gonna kill me with the guitar? You messed with the wrong pussycat. My bad. Josie and the Pussycats. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Emily Entravia. Du jour means Emily Entravia. Also back in the booth is Mr. Chris Cummins. Hello, everybody. On this episode, we are discussing the 2001 film from writer-directors Harry Elfont and Deborah Kaplan, Josie and the Pussycats. It's the story of the Pussycats. 
Josie, Valerie, and Melody, a rockin' group from Riverdale, and how they became entangled in a dastardly plot cooked up by the record industry to exploit teens for their limited but plentiful income and to turn them into good consumers. We will be spoiling this film as we go along, so if you haven't seen Josie and the Pussycats before, what are you waiting for? Chris, when was the first time you saw the film, and what did you think, sir? Excusably, the first time I saw this film was about four years ago. I am a Red Flong Archie Comics super fan, but I didn't see this movie because of the way the movie was marketed. The movie was notoriously marketing to kids, and the trailers and everything did not adequately represent what a smart and funny and ahead of its time in a lot of ways film that this was. So I saw it about four years ago, and I was just blown away by how good the performances are and how incredibly intelligent it is. And very subversive for a mainstream movie that was ostensibly marketed towards teenage girls. And Emily, how about yourself? I would say it was probably somewhere between 2003, 2004. I know it came out in 2001. I was in college, but again, it was also not marketed towards me. I was a young college student who wasn't necessarily seeing movies both that were aimed at little girls as it was positioned. And it didn't seem even, I think, the whole can't hardly wait team. Had they said from the team that brought you can't hardly wait, I know my friends would have wanted to see it and it would have been something that everybody would have watched, but just nobody knew what it was. At some point, a few years after it came out, it was either on TV one night or on video where enough people had started to talk about it for me to say, oh, maybe I should sit down and watch this. And of course, it's a delight. From the team that gave you Leap Year, that wouldn't have... (laughs) Did that come before or after? That came after, right? Yeah, that was 2010. Oh, man. Oh, what a trajectory. And I'll say, I'm not the biggest Can't Hardly Wait fan, but it's one of those movies that I think it doesn't speak directly to me, but I know people that really did connect to it. And there's something about it that was very much aimed at this particular demographic that isn't always served well. And I think Josie is that but taken to a different level in a different place yeah that team needs to do more things that are more of this ilk perhaps by the year 2001 when this sucker came out we had lived through what a decade of these cartoons and tv show adaptations for the big screen of various quality I know that Deborah Kaplan also happened to work on things like the sequel to the Flintstones. The first one was so bad that I never went back for the second one. She also worked on a very Brady sequel, which is a fantastic film. I was about to say, I will cut you if you're going to talk bad about either of the Brady Bunch movies. Oh, no. The Brady Bunch films are amazing. Throw my tiki on you and see what happens. And you had the the high points like the Adams Family movies and I like the Beverly Hillbillies movies, but then you had just a whole bunch of absolute shit. I think it was right around the time this movie was coming out was when things like SWAT and that awful Mod Squad movie. So for as many high points as you had with these adaptations, you had the bad ones outweighed them by 10 times, I would say. I think you have to commit when you're doing something like adapting a highly stylized property from 20 years earlier, 30 years earlier, whatever it was. And so something like the Brady Bunch movies, prime example, which I think are both wonderful, 
But when those go wrong, then they're going to go really wrong because you have to be big in a movie like that. So I think that's also why some of those movies you're mentioning are just terrible or they're trying to be cool. And you can't be cool when you're making a movie like that. And I think it's something I like about Josie is that, oddly enough, I don't think it was cool then. I think there's a lot about it that has aged to where it's, you watch it now, you're like, oh yeah, these styles are coming back. Today, you could see where somebody would actually want to dress like that and maybe accessorize like that. And that in itself tells you something when a movie has enough style that it does click 20 years later. Oh my God, 20, 22 years later. This is a 22-year-old movie. Jeez. That was an existential moment for me. Sorry. It's really interesting to me that we're now on those, if not in 30 years into this whole TV, into movies, some genre of cinema, right? But at the time this came out, it was when Bimini properties had already been tackled. So that left like Richie Rich and those kind of things. And then out of nowhere came Josie and the Pussycats, which Bing's issue with this film is the marketing, because I think once people see it, they really went into how Martin Fanny it is. But at the time, this, again, lengths along Archie Comics. Super fan for those at home who can't see me, I have two Archie Comics store ads from the 1960s hanging behind me. And this movie, I didn't even know it existed until about 2004, 2005. So that's how quickly it came and went. I just think that it was definitely a masterpiece in terms of TV shows turned into movies. I'll say something that I think is going to be very thematic throughout this whole episode. The biggest reason I think you probably never even knew it was a thing, and Mike, probably similar with you, this movie was aimed at girls. It was aimed at teenage girls. And especially then, still now, but especially then, the pop culture in general has a really hard time with properties that are seemingly made for young women. And this was the height of, it's 2001, so it's one of those things where it's, oh, this isn't for me because it's clearly for teenage girls. Whereas, like, and I wish I could think of good examples, but there were Transformers comes out and it's not one of those like, immediately, oh, this isn't for me. Oh, it's for me because looks dumb or it looks like an action movie or this but whereas Josie there's just not even getting past a quick when you're thinking of do I want to see that that was a movie that was just immediately color-coded pink and purple and all of that of all right this just isn't at all for my demographic and it's the way the world was at the time it's certainly the way it was sold and the way it was reviewed and so many of the movies that this is adjacent to I think and obviously the, another one we'll talk about later but even Romeo and Michelle is one that gets referenced within this movie. And it's another one that most men I know who've seen Romeo and Michelle are like, oh, this is really cute. This is really fun. Why didn't I know about it for 20 years? Because it was aimed at young women. You weren't allowed to think it was worthy of you. But And I'll admit, I was pretty unfamiliar with Josie and the Pussycats as a concept. I remember the Archie's cartoon being on when I was a kid, but like the Archie comic book, and this is where, Chris, I really hope you can school me a little bit. The Archie comic book, I always thought of those and the Harvey comic books and stuff to be like the starter kit for you liking comics, like getting your Casper the Friendly Ghost or Scrooge McDuck or those things. Like, that's where I put the Archies. And I was never sure if the Archies were 
how can I put this like a real thing or if they were like a fake band that somehow became a comic book? Like I'm completely flummoxed when it comes to the actual history of Archie comics. The Archies were in the comics very briefly before they jumped to TV and the Saturday morning cartoons. And when the show was done, it was very much inspired by what was happening with the Beatles and more so the Monkees, because they were just like, we're going to have this band, we're going to have this cartoon show that utilizes the pre-existing characters from Riverdale, which include not only Archie and Josie and the Pussycats, but, you know, the Sabrina characters as well. You know, there's a lot of big Archie verse out there. And the TV show incorporated songs like Sugar Sugar and with the studio band that was led by, produced by Don Kutterschneer and sung by Ron Dante. And Sugar Sugar was our biggest song. It was actually the number one biggest song in 1969, the top single. And their subsequent output, they had a few modern hits. But Sugar to this day was like their biggest thing. Wilson Pickett covered it. But the comics themselves, they were often lumped together with Harvey comics because these are quote-unquote kids comics. There was a sophistication to this Disney comics thanks to people like Carl Barks and things like that. And there's also a real sophistication to Archie comics that you may not have realized if you just read them and then moved out to Marvel, which is what people did as young kids. But there's a real nuance in Archie comics to things like Little Archie, which were these very smart and melancholy, heavy tales of the tragedy of childhood. And uh, then there's the great humor comics done by people like Sam Schwartz and Harry Lucy and other Archie legends that stands the best humor writing in general. Like, I'd say it's up there with Will Wilder stuff and classic Mad Magazine stuff. And there's a lot of, like, subversion to it and stuff. But because it was, you know, you have to realize that the 70s and 80s, where I grew up, comics did not have the cachet that they have now. So therefore, people didn't really recognize them as an art form, and they couldn't be more than just one thing, which was like a diversion for parents to give their kids to keep them occupied for a little bit, because it's the 1970s movies, and there's no internet. (laughs) It was the iPad of the 70s. Exactly, yeah. So there's a real rich sophistication to Archie comics and everything that wasn't present in other kind of kids' comics, with the exception of some of the Carl Barks Disney stuff. And unfortunately, the Archie cartoon of the 70s, although it it put them on like a global platform successfully because the music spinoff and the merchandising and all the great comics, the cartoon itself is abysmal. It's like some of Filmation, which is not the greatest animation house. It's some of their most terrible work in terms of voice acting and reused backgrounds. And I promise this wouldn't be that wrong, but that was the wrong Saturday. <laughs> Oh, no, I have a question. Where exactly did Josie and the Pussycats fit into the Archieverse? Josie and the Pussycats, they interacted throughout the years. It's changed a bit. They've been in Riverdale, and then they've been in another neighboring town to have so back and forth the ratings. But the, the kind of bottom line is they're, they're just friends of Archie's. Was it just, again, from not knowing briefly, like seeing the cartoons a little bit that would rerun in the 80s, was it a okay? Archie is there, and there's it's appealing to everybody. Was Josie and the Pussycats there to appeal directly to women or young women or girls in that case? That was it. It was very much born out of the women's right movement in the seventies. But the actual cartoon that Hannah Barbera did really deviated from the Archie comics because 
They do the whole 1970s mystery. They basically put the Scooby-Doo template on these prisoners for Joyce and the Pussycats. And in the second season of the show, they launched them into outer space. And then the comics in the late 70s, early 80s, took the lead from the cartoon and had more, more adventure-style story, kind of style more after. But the Brown is just like, we're going to have these three strong characters in Archie's Joyce and the Pussycats. Joyce and Resident the first she was in the Pussycat, she existed in the Archie Comics universe for roughly five to ten years before they decided to pair her up with the Pussycats and have her be musical. She was just kind of like the contemporary of Betty and Veronica for a while. All kind of solo stories before they formed the Pussycats. Yeah, because I was going to say that the the bad girl, like the manager girl... Alex Cabot, Thank which you. is also the name of the one of the ADAs on Law and Order SVU, which is why I remember it. He so looks like a Betty or a Veronica, just with the skunk stripe. She has that great line in the movie, I'm here because I'm in the comic. And it's Missy Pyle who looks like a cartoon and knows what to do with her face to be a cartoon character. She's so good. She really is. Yeah, I watched a lot of the Josie and the Pussycats in space in preparation for this. And yeah, that was something. After like about three or four episodes, there's like, yeah, in a lot of shared looks and a lot of shared voice talent from those Hanna-Barbera TV shows. So I'm very surprised. I'm trying to remember if they showed up. I don't think they showed up in that one. There was a great episode of Mystery Incorporated where it was all of the mystery teams and their sidekicks. And I don't think that the cat in the outer space version was strong enough to be the sidekick or the little space alien that they pick up. So it sounds like I'm crazy the way that I'm talking. (laughs) (laughs) And you and I completely understand everywhere you're saying. Oh, good, good. And that there was even a live action Josie and the Pussycats before live action, as in there were actually like women hired to be Josie and the Pussycats or they came about after the comic book, correct? Yeah, they tried to do a similar thing with Josie as a band that they did with Archie's, and it didn't have as much success, although one of the band members did go on to become a star, and I forget her name right now. Cheryl Ladd. Yeah. So, yeah, but they had, I think they only had one double, but they very much wanted to replicate the chart success of the Archie's, and it didn't quite ignite. They should have had the people writing the music for the movie write that music, because I love the music in this movie. The music is fantastic, and they seem to really go for people that were super talented. I'm trying to remember all of the people that were writing songs for this. I seem to remember they were all in real bands, and then they hired these folks to write these songs, and these songs are wonderful. They're catchy. They get in my head, and I hum them to myself and i think something also that i they clearly took the time to do it is not the three actresses performing but they did train them to where they could lip sync it well where they could fake i am not a guitarist or a drummer so for all i know tara reed is just flailing her arms but to an untrained eye it looks like she's playing the drums and it goes a long way and just all clicking you're not thinking about how that's not rachel e cook singing because it for all i know it is 
Yeah, I mean, everyone from like Adam Duritz from the Cannon Crows to Kay Handling from Letters to Cleo, who did the vocal, uh, to the late great Adam Schlesinger, who founds a woman. And I believe he also wrote a code the title song for that thing you do. That guy was just an enormous talent we lost due to COVID. But yeah, the musical pandering on this is incredible. And there's actually, I know Mike and Emily, if you don't know about it, you, if you don't have it already, you at least know about it. There's that great Mondo version of the soundtrack that's just beautiful about it. It comes with a seven inch of a du jour that includes. <gasps> I love it. Nice. Wow. It's MS. I, I mean, I would say get it while you can with what's happening with Mondo right now, but it's a sort of beautiful vinyl release and intros already of this event. That's awesome. Backdoor Lover also, which I'm sure we'll talk about du jour because they are such a highlight. But I I wasn't that aware of music at this time in the world. I've never been a big music person. So the music of the early 2000s, I don't know all of it. But I had friends that were big O-Town fans. And Backdoor Lover to me is the adaptation of Liquid Dreams, right? It's that same idea of just this super catchy but also incredibly dirty and incredibly graphic boy band song intended for like 11 year old girls to be singing. But I think it's one of those things where it's probably both very easy and very hard to make a good parody song. And I think again, like the music in this, it's perfect because you have genuinely, and that song in particular, it, it is funny, but it also completely sounds believable to what a boy band of that time would be putting out. Yeah. Back to the lemmers. It's, Right up there with Let's Do That from Rock Hard in terms of genre-specific, excellent double It's It nails that so perfectly. And it works as great music on its own. And that is not in my musical wheelhouse at all. But I, I heard that song like, this is catchy. And then you hear the lyrics and you're like, oh. But and that's what a lot of those songs were. If you go back and you listen to a little bit of NSYNC and a little bit of O-Town... And those were marketed at kids that were not yet having sex. And it's fascinating. Du jour means hygiene. Du jour means friendship. Du jour means, means family. Du jour definitely means craft positions as well. What is the soup du jour? It's the soup of the day. That sounds good. I'll have that. This movie is written so intelligently. And I don't think that we can understate that. It is so well put together. And there are even some twists in here where I didn't actually see them coming the very first time that I saw this. Surprise on me. You could dismiss this movie and be like, remember that scene in Wayne's World 2 where they're talking about not selling out and they just have all of the product placement? Contractor, no. I will not bow to any sponsor. Sorry, you feel that way, but basically it's the nature of the beast. Maybe I'm wrong on this one, but for me, the beast doesn't include selling out. Garth? You know what I'm talking about, right? It's like people only do things because they get paid. And that's just really sad. I can't talk about it anymore. It's giving me a headache. Here, take two of these. Ah, new print. Little. Yellow. Different. You can stay here in the big leagues and play by the rules, or you can go back to the farm club in Aurora. It's your choice. Yes. And it's the choice of a new generation. They took that idea, it feels like but they exploded it into 90 minutes. And it is just amazing how 
hard they go when it comes to this product placement. It is the cinematic language of this movie. Oh, it is wonderful. It's beautiful. <laughs> Just to look at DuJour's plane and to see all of the products in DuJour's plane, that it's Target logos everywhere and Target at this time is trying to be that hip young brand. I think they're still trying to be that, trying to be this hip young brand. And you got your bounce and your Coke and your ivory soap and just so many things just being shoved down your throat and it never lets up. There's not a minute of this film where it's like, this is a, a thing that just happens on this plane or it's a thing that happens over here. No, it is everywhere that they go. Even I think in Riverdale, they're affected by all of this commercialism. I think my favorite is when the manager, the other Alex Cabot, it's towards the end of the movie when he's really excited about something. He's drinking Red Bull and he's chugging it down and it's completely, it's actually organic to the scene because as he's drinking it, he's really tense, but he also is holding it right in the camera. And as he's doing it, he just looks and goes, and by the way, this is really good. It's great because it is actively advertising without it being, like, because it is so threaded into every character's voice, it works perfectly. And it's it reminded me a little bit because when I was Googling around to try to find reviews from the time it came out, because that's what's more interesting to me than today. We all agree, like, yeah, this movie's great. But in 2001, it was not that. Oh, some critics got it. Some, I don't know what its actual rotten score was back then. But you had like one actual review that was saying, oh, it's film.com. I've seen NBA games where the advertising was more discreet. Like, I want to know what that person wrote about Starship Troopers when they saw it. Because like, how thick is your head that you don't get that it is the joke? That's the most mentioned thing in reviews of this movie. That the product placement that so crazy is, yes, it is deliberately done. Do you think we weren't going to notice? I'm not sure anything that we did is terrible. I like when he complains about how the girl's parents aren't looking for them. They're They're not 12. In this movie at I knew a lot of production who worships at the altar of just going over to begin with. And I was just like, well, you really do not understand this movie. And as a critic, to add the respect level of Ebert didn't get at the time, certainly the rest of film criticism is going to get it. Which then I loved it and had been reevaluated throughout the years and that people had to do recognize that that sitting critics didn't understand is actually one of the smartest things about the film. And it's not like none of those companies paid for the publicity. It was uh, it was the filmmaker of Idura, and it was, was a genuine like, satire of folks. Yeah. But if you were a male critic over the age of 50 who walked into Josie and the Pussycats and you were probably given like a quick one pager on it starring Rachel Lee Cook from the Babysitter's Club, Tara Reid from American Pie, like you're going into this movie thinking, okay, I'm watching a movie made for teenage girls. Oh, God, I have to watch this. This is the hard part of my job that I hate. And it's crazy that it's because I think in a way something this movie does, it's like almost a disservice, but it should have worked. It opens with DuJour. It opens with the comic high point of this movie, I think. That scene on the plane is so funny. It's establishing exactly what the tone is going to be. But then it shifts and it does go a little bit more earnest, a little more into these girls, their friendship, the dream they're trying to get. But how did you watch that first scene and not say, oh, what do I have here? I have something interesting. It's just frustrating because you know why. It's because people went into this movie thinking it was going to be dumb teen girl stuff. And so they walked out thinking that's what they got. And it's very sad. As soon as Alan Cumming 
is presented with the tape with the subliminal messages by Les, the dumb one of the group, the the Peter of the group. And when he goes into the cockpit and just goes, take the Chevy to the levee, I was like, oh my God, oh my God, this is fantastic. And then, yeah, that guy in the parachute looks just like Wyatt. Did you want me scratch positions? They rely on montages in this movie so much, but every single montage tells such a story. Like you have a beginning, a middle, and an end every single time you have a montage. Really well done filmmaking. And to good music. All the montages are to the original music. And you should have a montage. You are making a movie in part. Again, this movie I think is made for everyone, but it also does something that I like, which is it, since it was on its surface being made for teenage girls, it doesn't insult them and it does give them a lot. It This is the kind of movie when I was 13, I really would have loved. I was older when it came out, so I didn't get that aspect of it, but it does give you all of those things with, even though it's being ironic about it, it's genuine about the characters being who they are. And that's something that other filmmakers, I think, would have gone a little meaner, a little more winking and a little more, but we know it's dumb. Now, this movie doesn't do that, which I appreciate. There's a real sense of, especially with the TRL segment, there's a real segment in the movie to be like, hey, we know watch what's being served to you. You deserve better. And we were discerning. And that's a super subversive film for this dude because it is, yeah, I would say it was biting in the hand in the seams, but the hand didn't exactly seem in the. It did not. <laughs> it was a hell of a thing to put on. And I just remember, like, first of all, you never realized what he was getting into or doing. He's heard of the stuff that can tell to say, oh, just do this. I actually respect, I never really thought much of Harrison Daly before this, but I respect that he had a neighbor that he did this. Have a sense of humor about himself enough to be in this film. And everybody is giving their all in this movie. Every performance from the du jour guys who are on screen for 10 minutes, but my God, they are fantastic. And just everybody's so recognizable. Man, Alan Cumming. I fucking love Alan Cumming. He is so good. And then him and Parker Posey. Parker Posey, maybe now people know how fantastic she is. Maybe. But I've been in love with her since Party Girl and from the very earliest roles that I ever saw her in. She's just always been so great and she was like the queen of the indie movies for so long in this oh my god she's wonderful i love just her attitude i love her her lisp that she occasionally gets those outfits the lisp was not what the reveal was supposed to be can't remember if this is in the script or if this was something i remember even reading in parker posey's biography i was or her essay book of essays i was trying to find the part but i couldn't if memory serves and i I could be wrong about this. What I have in my head is that initially Lisa was supposed to be, or Fiona was supposed to be revealed that, yeah, she was awkward. She wasn't cool because she was fat. Yep. And then she got skinny and now that's okay. And I think it was Parker Posey's idea to be like, I think we should do something different. What if I have a list? And there's a few things about this movie. And again, this is true of most properties from this time. Remember, Friends was on. Like, we had a very particular understanding of what was the worst thing a woman could be, and that was fat. And this initially could have gone in the like Monica flashback type way, 
And I am so glad it didn't. I'm so glad Parker Posey basically was like, oh, no, I can do a good list. Let me do that. Thank goodness. Because I think that would have made this like a lot of movies of this era where you're like, yeah, it's great. It's one thing that you just have to like let go of how they, it's really fat chainy. And still, there's still like lines here and there in this movie that are a little bit like, I think Missy Pyle is calling everybody fat. There's jokes here and there that you're like, oh, God, I just wish you weren't doing that. But it's what we were doing back then. And it's all we don't do it now. But now we know a little better than to do that, especially in a movie aimed at or presented as something positive for teenage girls. So I appreciate that change, if you will. There are some remaining lines, like you were talking about Missy Pyle and some of her lines, and then just that weird competitiveness that Fiona has with Josie. How much do you weigh? I weigh three pounds lighter. (laughs) And just like how she eats one chip. Oh my God, you must think I'm a pig. And God, it's her line readings and her weird voice that she just leans into. Like, it's one of those parts that I think... You look at it and you say, nobody else would have made those choices. And and that's something I love of what she can do when she is cast right in a movie. This is like right alongside Starting Girl and Kicking the Screaming to me in terms of that bad tier Parker Posey performances. I wish that the deleted scene of her coming into the party was still in there. And especially because I think you get a little bit of this, but I think there's a little bit more in the deleted scenes. But to hear the orchestral version of one of the Josie songs as she's coming down the stairs with that amazing outfit with all the little like polka dots off of her shoulders. Oh, that move and makes noises. I love a costume that makes noise. That's like one of my favorite things to see in a movie. Oh, I love it. Yeah, she's wonderful. And I think that idea of the list, apologies to our friends with speech impediments, but it it was something that she carries with her rather than something that's in the past, like her potentially being heavy. That was a really smart thing that she's still there. And then same thing with Wyatt, that he has the pot belly, that he's now bino. We really went after albinos in the early 2000s. Remember Cold Mountain? There was this whole period of time where a lot of movies were just using it as a kind of like split personality or disassociative personality disorder in the 80s. That was just one of the easy things we thought worked on film for a while. And then we got in trouble for it. Yeah. Well, there was The Firm. There was uh, Powder. Yeah, there was, there's been a going all the way back to that Chevy Chase and Goldie Hawn movie where the we had the killer albino. Yeah. Uh, evolution. Oh, it's an important thing in Hollywood and takes time sometimes. You might say that like albinos were the villain du jour of the... Yes. Ah, du jour means albinos. Slump down. Sorry. <laughs> the thing that really gets me with this movie is when I watch it multiple times and I see how clever things are in the background. There's that whole thing of why it comes in after Dejura is dead and he comes into a record store and he's got their disc and he has the store clerk put it on. And all of a sudden you have people starting to say, red is the new pink. Right. And then all of a sudden it's, oh, orange is the new pink and I want orange shoes. And when we get introduced to Fiona, everybody around her is wearing orange. And it just, it continues on like things like jerkin and that's the new word. We're going to say jerkin and it just continues. There's just all of these background jokes going on through the entire thing. So it's working on these multiple levels. So watching this film over and over again, you really get rewarded. 
which also feels like something kind of comic book-like in itself of just, this isn't so much, I think, visually done comic book style, the way some movies do with different film techniques. But there is something about that where you do have specific images and colors that I feel might be trying to summon that feel. Yeah, and, and coming from the point of view of in Archie Lover comics and the Josie and the Pussycast comics of the 70s, there were always so many background details and gags and things happening. And this movie was definitely a tribute to that in a subtle way, too. And I appreciated that as a, well, that was like an extra level that as a fan of the comics, I could appreciate. I think if there's one joke that does not age well in this movie, Mr. Movie Phone. I still think it's funny, but that's because I talked to Mr. Movie Phone a lot in the early 2000s. You and me both. And it's just like one of these things from 2001 where I'm like, I don't know how many people watching this movie now are going to understand this. I need to ask young people that question because we're not going to know. It's like the AOL dial-up sound. You know, and forgot to text things that really cherish as part of their pop culture idea. <laughs> this thing's a weird thing we had to deal with. But yeah, it's completely... Ask someone, I'm 48, and ask someone 38, and I don't know the thing now, right? You know what, though? You mentioned Wayne's World earlier, and it makes me think of a very specific joke in, I think it's Wayne's World 2, when I think it's after they have the concert, and there is the, it's all litter all around, and there is the indigenous man cleaning up, and he looks at the camera, and there's a tear in his eye, and Garth comes out, it's okay, man, it'll clean it. I was born in 82. I didn't get that joke. I just thought, oh, it's so dirt. Like, I thought it was a cute joke because they were talking about cleaning up litter. And then I remember my dad saying, oh, you don't get that. Oh, so in the 70s, there was a commercial. That's appropriate. I think this doesn't have to be a timeless movie. There, there are aspects of it. I got really excited. And I'm one of those people that I think, yes, there are those 90s things that do immediately perk me up because I remember what it was like when my parents would get excited about 60s references and things. And yeah, when there's a Zima reference in any movie, immediately I just am like, yeah, Zima! That's just the nostalgia itch, you know, some of these like cabinet to Gen X. Maybe people that are familiar with Seinfeld reruns will know of Mr. Movie Phone because I remember him threatening uh, Kramer at one point. Why don't you just tell me the name of the movie you want to see? Yes. Have faith in the youth. They learn. Anyone who's seeing this movie is smart enough to look up Mr. Movie Phone. Anyone who in 2023 is going to actively seek out Josie and the Pussycats, they're in a big role. I agree. I agree. Well, and I love that Eugene Levy, his little cameo in here, is still timeless. That people do know of Eugene Levy because of Shit's Creek. And there's the generation before that that knew of Eugene Levy from things like American Pie, where it was really... His role in American Pie was one of the best parts of that entire movie. I like that movie, but he in there, oh my God, it was just such a new appreciation of Eugene Levy. And I go back to SCTV days, so it was great to see him. Yeah, and who was supposed to be that part? It was supposed to be Chris Rock. I don't know what happened. I think it was a scheduling thing, but the celebrity that comes out and is giving the educational video was initially Chris Rock. Which I think is the greatest recasting because I just love the idea that on any casting sheet, when you're looking at, oh no, Will Smith dropped out, who are we going to call? Oh no, Catherine O'Hara dropped out, we'll call Parker Posey. Oh no, Chris Rock dropped out, who's next on the list? 
for me. He's not a Chris Rock type. Because it makes it even funnier for me because Chris Rock would have been of age, whereas Eugene Levy is an old man. He's older now, obviously, but he was an old man at the time talking hip and talking to the government officials. Yeah. And had the girl, yeah, the girl in the bikini. He just didn't fit in there whatsoever. It's like he had two left feet, which he does based on the movies I've seen. The visuals in this are fantastic. I love the whole. I was talking about the montages, but I love the montage when their album starts to go to the top and you get the billboard chart. And I didn't realize until I was rewatching it, and I think I was watching it with the commentary on that, that is a set part of it is computer generated and filmic tricks. But then when it comes to them under that big number and stuff, it's all a set. I was like, that's amazing. The sets in this film are fantastic. Yeah, it's a smart way of doing that, of them like literally climbing the charts. I will put out a deep love of Tara Reid in this movie. And as one of those actors who got the wrong end of the stick in Hollywood, because, and again, this is one of those things that like, time has been kind. We've reevaluated how we treated Britney Spears. We're doing that whole thing where we're looking back and saying, oh my God, why did Hollywood hate young women in the early 2000s. And Tara Reid was was one of those actresses who was hot. She was cast in a lot of comedies. She could play dumb incredibly well and probably made personal decisions that made her an easy target for gossip rags. And just her career was never what it could have been because she is, I think of Thinking of other movies like this, of Drop Dead Gorgeous being like a similar thing where you have a lot of young actresses who are playing kind of extreme types and how most of those actors like went on, like Amy Adams in that movie is what I think was Tara Reid in this movie, where like she should have gotten more from this, where you see that she could play lovably dumb so well and she is so charming in it. And it makes me mad thinking like what movies we should have had with her in those parts. It's a really engaging performance on Reed's part. Yeah, it takes a lot to be the dumb one. To know where those beats are for the comedy, because you could step on lines, you could come in too late, you could just not have the chops to be able to do that. Even just simple things like her with all of the signs and stuff, and when she has the one where it's conk if you love pussy cats, and then the way that she reacts when the cars are crashing is just Oh, this is really good. And yeah, just so many of those great lines are like the look on her face when she, when they're going through what people are thinking and they come to her and she's still singing, if you're happy and clap your hands. If I could go back in time, I'd want to meet Snoopy is (laughs) lines of cinema history. It really is. I'd forgotten it until I just rewatched it again yesterday. And when that line, I, I just, I'd forgotten it was there. And when she said, I just exploded because it's just so cute and funny and perfect of this character and something nobody else could say. I had the prize of the movie. I was laughing so much and I just like rewound it. I'm like, this is not, and if there's one line to sum up how unexpected Josie the Pussycat says, it's that kind of very, I mean, tears that aren't surreal because it's so very English, but it works in this room. But yeah, it's just, it's that kind of really smart, weird humor that this movie has at times that is really unexpected given what you would think this movie would be. Even like weird little parts like the third person from Captain and Tennille. 
I love that. I love this like sudden behind the music where we're interviewing the third member of the Captain and Tenniel. And just that they chose that band. I love Captain Tenniel. Love Will Keep Us Together was like my song when I was five years old. I just thought it was the best song ever. So it's just, like, oh, cool. Talk to me about Muskrat Love, please. Oh, and the other thing talking about Parker Posey is that whole thing about how she says the quiet part loud. That always gets me every single time. And that is a scene that I can imagine when you are directing it, when you are putting it together, you just, you do it and you're like, if it doesn't work, it's just stops everything. I hope it works. You cross your fingers. I, how do you know if it works? And you don't probably until you're in a screening room and seeing how it works. It does the thing that also is important when you're doing a joke like that, which is you go too long so that it becomes funny again. Oh, yeah. And the guy that she's playing off against, I've seen him in so many things. I think he was in The Good Place, and he's always good and stuff. And just to, even to see all the, the extras and stuff, like... Catherine Isabel. Yeah, there's so many good people just in the crowd. It's amazing. So what happens when you film in Canada in the early 2000s. Alex M., I was always a little hesitant about him, just as far as like how he works in this movie. But I do like that he's this symbol of purity from Riverdale that he never gets tarnished and that he becomes a victim like Valerie in this. Another actress that I just can't get enough of to have Rosario Dawson as Valerie and just that interaction between her and Josie is so good. And then that use Alan M as this kind of that symbol of what they used to be. He's like a, a walking bus pass. It works, I think, because it it was funny. I was thinking the same as I was watching it this time was it's one of the things that kind of sometimes brings the movie down a little bit because everything else is so up at a 10 and very over the top. And then you have him and Josie often playing it very straight and playing it like this sweet will they won't they like hometown kids that are in love but can't tell. And it's one of those, oh, and it's always there as a thing to make her take her to the different level. But then you get to their final scene together at the concert. And I was like, oh, no, this totally works. Because when you get to they are now rock stars, they are performing and suddenly and he's there and it's really earnest. But then it gets very funny because they are in the middle of this giant concert and she's just talking to him as if they are just connecting at home. And just even the way they word things like, no, I, I know you don't feel the same way about me. Wait, explain to me what you meant when you said that you don't think I feel the same way about you. It's so awkward and wrong that it works because it is then over the top by playing it straight. It's playing it straight in a big scenario that makes it over the top. And it's really, I realized this time watching that I'm like, man, that's smart. It's really smart. Yeah, this whole movie is smart. Like I said, it's put together so well. The one twist that I didn't necessarily see coming was I didn't think it was less from the band coming back from DuJour. <laughs> He's the only one who wasn't probably work like the other four actors, I think, could only work one day. Yeah. And yeah, when they are there, quote unquote, there in the body cast, but he's not. And I'm just like, there's no way that's. Seth Green was a busy man that time. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm sure that the uh, Breckenmeyer and Donald Faison were not in those casts. The monkey might have been, though. We don't. It might have been. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, and speaking of, one other thing that is interesting, and I had to look at the dates to figure out when it all happened, 
But the Simpsons episode, there is a Simpsons episode that aired February. This came out in April of 2001. The Simpsons episode aired in February. I didn't do the research, but I had to imagine this was pushed back a little bit because of 9-11, but I could be wrong. It just feels like it's a movie that has plane crashes in it. And it was, oh no, it was before 9-11, wasn't it? Yeah. That was probably another reason why it got quiet for a while. But there was the Simpsons episode where Bart is recruited to be in a boy band and the boy band, it's Nelson, it's Millhouse, it's Ralph, I think. And they are actually pawns of the government who have subliminal messages in the music that is telling everybody to join the Navy. It's a very similar story, obviously. Just sure, sheer coincidence, I am sure. That weird thing that happens, like the deep impact. What were the two? Armageddon. Armageddon, yeah. like how that always comes in twos. I don't know, 2001 was the year of pop music being used to tell subliminal messages by the government, but worth checking out. It's funny because whenever I hear the phrase, I said the quiet part loud, I always think of Homer Simpson. There you go. Makes sense. Direct tie. They predicted everything, right? Isn't that the whole, the series of memes? Pretty much, unfortunately. They predicted Josie and the Pussycats, too. (laughs) (laughs) They did. Two months early. So funny. And it also, I love a movie that ends on a, the cat. I like bloopers in a comedy when they make sense. And I think this is the kind of movie where bloopers make sense. And I love a see, I love a movie that ends with just the cast dancing because I think it's cute. And I find that very charming. It's very cute. And I do have to say the Blu-ray of this is very well worth your money. If you're a fan of this, they've got the deleted scenes. They've got the audio commentary. I think there are like standalone music videos, if memory serves. There's a couple of making ofs and and it's such a time capsule too, because they're all like they're all so young and it's baby face for Rosario Dawson out around with Tara Reed and it's just very cute. Yeah, it's super cute. Yeah, just to think that this was Rosario Dawson had already been in kids like six years prior. And to think that as we're recording this, Ashoka just had the trailer premiere at the Star Wars, whatever the, the heck you call it. And I'm just like, she's still just plowing through life, man. She's just, there's no holds barred for this lady. She can do whatever she wants. She's one of those actors that I always imagine if, because I have, I've never seen her in person. I feel like she's somebody, if you like saw in person, you'd just be like, oh, just that very intimidating coolness. Because I think wasn't even like the way she was casting kids was that she was just like hanging out in New York and the casting director was like, hey, are you an actor? Because you look like an actor. There's just something like really cool about her that I completely buy her as a rock star because she looks like she should be a rock star. Yeah. And Rachel Lee Cook, who I don't think we've talked too much about in this episode, she does a phenomenal job. And it's just like, why do I not see more Rachel Lee Cook and things, please? This doesn't make any sense to me. She should be everywhere. She had a big career when she was young. And again, I say big career because she's and she's probably about my age. She was in the Babysitter's Club. She was in this. She's all that. Like she had that like ingenue thing going for a long time and then i think it was again one of those things where like nobody found what to do with her so she's worked steadily you skim through her imdb every year she had multiple things but i don't know just never the roles or the projects that you you'd want to see her in i don't know put her in an apple tv series i'm sure she'd be great in one they make a million of them we don't know about i would love to see her have that Christina Ricci resurgence. Put her in like a... Oh my God, why isn't she in Yellow Jackets? 
But clearly, it seems like some of them really went, they would really the jackets. Season three, it's freaking out. The one thing that I can say I'm really glad about, we mentioned the ladies that played Josie and the Pussycats back in the 70s. I'm kind of glad they didn't have to do the obligatory cameo in this movie where everything just stops dead for if you don't recognize these people that's okay but your parents probably do and that's just so awkward every single time and the ones that really get me are where you think it's an homage or or cameo and then it ends up not being and you're just like oh that was just a weird decision on the part of the director to leave that in there for a while yeah i think that's one of the benefits of the real life Josie and the Pussycats music group not taking off and they might be, yeah, yeah. No need to give anybody work. They couldn't do it. And then Josie and the Pussycats come back, right? In a different incarnation in that Riverdale TV show? They sure do. Yeah. <laughs> They're a huge part of the early seasons of Riverdale. There was a, a spin on the of Riverdale called Kingy King that went into the season, and Josie was a main character on the Melnet. And then they brought a band, they practiced out of using the Pussycats characters for kind of rock the Pusheta River to where at the end of the episode, they sent them to solve mysteries in New Orleans. So it was never much like that, but we're going to come back to the cartoon. You're know, nice touch, but using the Pussycats are going to go completely differently, very serious are on Riverdale, but they do a really nice job. They cover a lot of centers on Riverdale, but they've never done like three small words or pretend to be nice, which is a bummer. I hope you need a shout out to this movie. All right, we're going to take a break and we'll be right back after these brief messages. Classicy is a film journey to the East, a curated streaming service offering the best of contemporary and classic cinema from Eastern Europe and Asia. Using coupon code Mike50, you can get Classicy membership for just $5.50 a month, giving you the opportunity to sample award-winning films, documentaries, silent masterpieces, classic comedies, and more. You could also get access to the Classicy Journal, exclusive cast and director interviews, video essays, and watch lists. Visit klassiki.online and sign up now to start your adventure in film. When the world is in trouble, when our future is in danger, we call upon one man. But when he's busy, he calls five girls. Columbia Pictures presents The Spice Girls. All right, we're coming. In their film debut, Victoria, Emma, Mel B., Jerry and Mel C. They're ready for action. Go, pal! They're dressed to kill. Do you want that shaken or stirred? And thoroughly prepared for any encounter. It's a story of love. I think with boys, you should be able to just wheel them in. Yeah, and order them like a pizza. Yeah, no cheese. Compassion. It's really too hot in here. I need a fan. <sighs> and misunderstanding. When the speeding melon hits the wall, <laughs> there's Christmas for the crows. What did he say? I haven't a clue. 
That's more like it. This January. Would you like an hors d'oeuvre? No. But I'll have one of these pie things. Make your choice. Oh, I like the blonde one. No, 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 no. Sporty. Rock your world. And spice up your life with the Spice Girls. Spice World. Yeah, but can they act? Um, blah, blah, blah. Um, girl power. Feminism. Do you know what I mean? We are back and we are not talking about Josie and the Pussycats, but we are turning to look at another movie that came out just a few years prior to Josie, which is not a prequel to Frank Herbert's Dune. Yes, of course, I'm talking about Spice World. Spice World, the vehicle, almost literally vehicle for the (laughs) Spice Girls that came out in 1997. It was directed by Bob Spears, written mostly by Kim Fuller, a little bit of extra writing by Jamie Curtis, and based on an idea by the Spice Girls. The Spice Girls, they were an anomaly as far as we were talking about all the boy bands at the time, but there weren't, and as far as my memory goes, I don't know about Vanity 6 was already done, but I don't know if and Vogue and... Destiny's Child, where they were at? Destiny's Child was around. When I think of female music of this era, or female bands of this era, no doubt comes to my mind, just because that was what people I knew thought was cool. That was the epitome of the perfect woman to both girls and guys I knew at this era. I'm going to say I love the Spice Girls. and In a way, I shouldn't have, because they were not aimed at me. I think what was beautiful about Spice Girls was that they were unapologetic about what they were. It was no secret that they were a monkeys-like band of having been assembled and auditioned, but they were in different parts doing the work. I think Jerry Hallowell wrote most of the music or a good chunk of it. And when they came out, it was a sort of alternative to cool music. It was bops. It was just catchy. It was, yes, it was auto-tuned. But it was beats that you could move to and dance to. And there was like perspective behind it. Everybody rolls their eyes at girl power. But in a way, it really was what they were trying to do. It was about them being very confident in what they were and who they were. And yes, you boil that down to I'm the sporty one. I'm the posh one. I'm the cute one. I'm the redheaded one that we never quite figured out what I am. So in this movie, I'm both the smart one and occasionally the sexy one. I don't really know. But like all that being said, I think, again, this is another thing that has been reevaluated quite a lot over the years. Spice World came out. I was 16 when it came out. It came out in like January of, of 1998 in the States. And my experience with the Spice Girls was... Somehow I ended up like one of those lazy days where you had VH1 on and my older sister and I watched three hours of Spice Girls stuff. There was like a a documentary and interviews. And by the end of those three hours, we looked at each other. We're like, they're fun, right? This isn't cool, but it's really enjoyable. It was a pure guilty pleasure. And we went to see it. My 16th birthday, my sister's like, I'm taking you. We're going to see Spice World. We go in that movie theater. There were three sets of people. There was my sister and I who were there, like, ironically, but genuinely were enjoying it. 
there was a the target audience, which was a mother and like her 10 year old daughter. And there was a bunch of college guys who were a different target audience because they were there because the Spice Girls were hot. And I think all three groups were incredibly satisfied with the movie, but that did not represent a large enough chunk of the audience for this movie to actually have and make any money. I feel like, Emily, you forgot the one group this movie was targeted to that I fall into, which is the Goofy Goon Man. Yes, you're right. You're right. I did. And this movie, I a guys on him at Big Ass Snob who's stuck in 1992 and obscure shingles and everything. But if you're going to spice up your life, holy shit, that song is amazing. Either he's drunken on silver or spice grails. He's going to came out. I was up in the room when, like, they were through it. And, like, I would never have heard of them before I arrived. And by the time of my left, it was just, boom. There were such a lot anecdote to the kind of the sad pretension of, like, the bright pop on the beginning of that your racism, bro. I like my racism, daughter. There was to that, right? Otters in the ground, so there Spice Girls. Really, it's just saying, I'm just so charmed by their greasing. There's this incredible, it's probably on YouTube interview with with Kurt Linder, and I believe it's there, it's Mel B. And when she's saying, no, it's about girl power, Kurt Linder laughs, and Mahi Lee says, oh, I'm sure it is. And then she immediately becomes scary, Spice says, it was, it's about girl power. As it was just a concern, you tell Kurt, don't take your movie, Kurt Linder, shut. Yeah. And you watch this movie today, and they are 100% like they're feminists. They dress how they want, they act how they want. They are not intimidated by people. They are not sacrificing anything for the relationships in their life. Their relationships are their friends. It's glorious. I believe them. I wish in real life, like the band didn't implant and then come back. But that kind of thing is sure, Metal Spice Girls mentor bubble. But yeah. It was so charming. So when this movie was coming out, it was just like, oh, okay. Yeah, uh-huh. a movie? Okay, I'm there. So for me, I totally missed the Spice Girls. Like, I, of course, you couldn't escape Wannabe. That was everywhere. And even with a two becomes one or whatever. So there were a lot of songs that I heard, but I really wasn't paying attention to music starting in about April of 94. So I went for a while without knowing anything. And then by the time this movie came out, I was 27 and going through a divorce. So this completely passed me by. It wasn't until years later that I finally saw it on cable. It was like, oh, this is delightful. This is really good. Like I missed out on Josie and the Pussycats the first time around. It wasn't until years later where, and I think even more recent than what you were talking about, Emily. So like probably 2020, maybe 2018 at the, yeah. So I really came to a light. They had a resurgence. Was it the, that was back, was it the 2012 Olympics? 2014 Olympics? They had a little comeback. And again, it was enough time that I think, too, a theory of what happened was the people that were Spice Girls fans back then were a little embarrassed about it. We knew it wasn't cool to like the Spice Girls, but it was still something that brought joy. And now, 20 years later, me as a 41-year-old woman can say, fuck yeah, I like the Spice Girls. Here's why. And I'll defend them. And I'm able to articulate it now 
Whereas back then, and my God, if you want to go down a bad rabbit hole, go to Rotten Tomatoes and find their top critics reviews from when this movie came out. And you will want to stab your eyeballs with the sharpest sticks you can find. I have a list of them if you'd like me to read any of them. So let's see. Okay, here is one from the Washington Post. While Busty Ginger looks like a reform stripper who's been at the buffet table too long, create a fat joke in a movie review aimed at teenage girls. Posh Spice is sleek and slim and clearly destined for the next James Bond film. Oh, God. Okay, here's CNN. They're all Big Macs and push-up bras to me. To be honest, I do remember that Scary Spice is aptly named, what with her hellish resemblance in voice and person, to downtown Julie Brown. Okay, so we have a racist review. That's cute. And then here's my favorite one. I think this is also the CNN. Okay, half of the folks who think I'm being too hard on this movie haven't challenged themselves since the last time they tried to parallel park. So how can they pretend that this thing is some sort of dunderheaded aberration? Go to the video store and check out the dust that's gathering on the copies of Citizen Kane, Red River, Bonnie and Clyde, and Lost in America, for that matter. It sure is hard to get your hands on Dumb and Dumber, though, isn't it? It's buffed and polished and pre-digested for the drooling preteen. The ladies like to hold two fingers aloft, which is either a cry for peace or yet another reminder of just how many breasts they have. Oh, God. And this wasn't like some dude in his basement typing out a review. That was CNN's official review of Spice World, a PG-rated movie marketed towards young girls with no sex in it, with no violence in it. It was a cartoon about this girl group who were friends, and it's a movie about them being friends. And to every person writing a review, it was all about their push-up bras. It's just abhorrent and just really does put you back in that time of my god we were we can talk about a lot of periods of american cultural times when we were awful to different demographics we were really bad to young women in this era yeah unfortunately there's a lot of reasons why both of these movies that are cut being covered in this era in this episode linked together but that's an unfortunate one is just how things were marketed towards young girls and how like the negativity that we're just looking at these people so casually like Chris you're just wow it's just another reason why I'm not a big fan of critics yeah there, there's one more from the Chicago Reader that I think also speaks to something very specific about what they thought these characters were supposed to be a pregnant friend wants them to be godmothers is meant to represent their estrangement from social and family lives But the device just draws attention to the fact that the group's appeal is based on something antithetical to their maternal instincts. What? They're not women because they're not mothers? Wow. (laughs) Wow. If that doesn't make you a Spice Girls fan, because then you're immediately like, I gotta defend these broads. My gosh. Yeah. There's so much clear hate towards women in those reviews that it's just, it's disgusting. Wow. Yeah. Really disgusting. I'm so glad that everyone here is a fan of, of them and this because now we can try to get her to the fun aspects. Yes. Oh, this goofy ass movie. To know, yeah, that's some John Simon level critical answer right there. Emily, I think you really nailed it when you said this is a cartoon movie because the characters do feel very cartoonish and i could see this being adapted as a cartoon very easily and you get those jokes like 
basically their tour bus is the TARDIS, right? Because there's just so huge inside. But yet it doesn't have a toilet. Yeah. That... It has a shower, but not a toilet. <laughs> right. The Brady Bunch house. We talked about the cast when we were talking about Josie and the Pussycats. The level of talent that's involved in this from all over the place. You've got Richard E. Grant as the manager, Alan Cumming again in this as the embedded reporter who reminded me of ABBA the movie. You've got Meatloaf as the bus driver. George Went and Mark McKinney as two filmmakers. You've got Roger Moore as the shadowy man behind the scenes. I love Roger Moore in this so much. I love the gag of just the animal changing of just a cat and then finally a pig. It's just the dumbest thing and it makes me so happy. The self-awareness of Roger Moore and his performance in this film it's beautiful. Is- yeah. It's wonderful. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Barry Humphreys, Dame Edna herself in here as this newspaper editor, and Richard O'Brien just, <laughs> like, where did you come from, man, as this amazing paparazzi and doing some of the best gags since the Ali G movie? It's just, this is amazing. <laughs> yeah. Like, the cast is stacked. Oh, yeah. God, yes. But then there's, like, enough, like, the fact that, George Wright and Mark McKinney are also in this. You knew what you mentioned. And it's just like, that's, you know, I remember how British audiences felt about those two being in there because I don't know how, at the time how well Kids in the Hall were known in, in the UK. I, I certainly don't know the feeling of the cheers. You know, I mean, it's just, it's, it's so random that they were both in it. Like, I don't. The lady of British, even you know, iconic people being in this film, but then the newest two, it's a, it's oh, I I love them, but it's just that's a really strange casting choice. Those are strange verses to me. When you get Jason Fleming also showing up in here, one of his earlier roles, and if you don't know the name the face you've seen this guy in so many things i just was re-watching from hell and of course he shows up in there the little cameos in here bob Geldof and the whole <laughs> makeover fry. thing yes yeah, stephen fry yeah it's just amazing this cast and they know when to really lay it on thick and they know when to back it off because the spice girls for all intents and purposes they're not actresses but they do a phenomenal job in this They're great. Yeah, I think some are better than others. I think the movie kind of understands who can carry what, but for what they're called on to do. And for me still, I remember thinking this when I saw it over 20 years ago now, walking away and being like, Victoria Beckham is hilarious. Just everything she does. It's just that thing where you just you have a very specific thing you do. And you do it the same way every time. And it just every she makes me laugh the most in this movie. There is a real, almost effortlessness, if that's the proper word, to their performances in here. And I think a huge, huge degree of that is the thing that really excited me about this movie is that Bob Spears directed it, who directed Folly Towers. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, I think it's the second season of Folly Towers, and the first, if not the very first, but maybe the first couple of absolutely fabulous theories. So then that is a legitimate British comedy director. And no, that's going to go this kind of, I've heard this being compared to the carry on films in terms of like joke mileage, but it doesn't have that, the weird out of date 
fierceness that the carry on films had, but it does have that kind of like joke per minute speed to it. But I think this movie was really willing for a kind of snapshot of what life and British pop culture was like in the late night. And I think it absolutely succeeds in that respect. And as a result, it's dingy but timeless at the same time. Yeah, it's funny because it is obviously very 90s, but it doesn't feel specifically 90s. And part of that might be because it is pulling so many cameos from actors better known in the 70s and 80s. And the other part might just be because it's really British. So there's a lot about it that feels not like my 90s, but probably was British 90s. I think if you looked at it, you would clock the year, but maybe not as easily as maybe Josie, which I think feels very 2001. I honestly thought these movies released closer together. I didn't realize there was a four-year gap because I was just like, what was this weird thing with Alan Cumming being in these two movies in the same year? And it's, no, that's not right. That is not right. (laughs) Yeah, and this, it didn't do well, right? It wasn't a total bomb. I think it probably did well better in Europe than in the States. I don't know that there was ever a plan to do like a Spice World 2, although I feel like it could have done like a Wayne's World 2 thing and actually maybe even been better. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And yeah, the Spice Girls were not treated very kindly in the U.S., but I will tell you, budget of $25 million, box office of $100 million, but it doesn't break it down into which country gave what. So, Yeah, because I remember it being gone very quickly here. Yeah, I think it was considered a bomb in the States, and it came out in the end of January, which is typically the time that you dump movies. Although for me, it's always like the best time of the year because that's when all the terrible horror movies that are actually good come out. But I guess it must have been a thing where internationally, and I think not even just England, I think a lot of other parts of the country really loved the Spice Girls. And why wouldn't you? They're delightful. This was like one of those movies that was really big in Japan. I could see that. Apparently, there's a scene that we've never seen from this movie that Gary Glitter had a four-minute cameo, and he was found out about the uh, child pornography right before it came out. So they went ahead and deleted that from the print, and though they sing I'm the Leader of the Gang, which is a Gary Glitter song, but they uh, just excised him right out of the movie. Interesting. Yeah. In that regard, it's interesting that Jimmy Saddle isn't in this movie. Yes. <laughs> well, was like, here, yeah, that brought him a similar beloved figure in British pop culture. That would have been weird if Saddle remained a year, you know, and this seems like the sort of thing he would pop up in, which fortunately he didn't. So, yeah. <laughs> I wonder, I, I didn't look too much up because there's no, there still hasn't been like a big DVD release of this. I have a VHS of it somewhere that I thankfully didn't throw out because it's very hard to find. It deserves, I want a 10-hour documentary about it. I always gathered that this was was made pretty quickly because it does feel like as much as it is trying to do a day in the life, there is something missing tying everything together. It just, it seems like this is a case where it's like they had to strike where the iron was hot. The nature of a pop band like this was that it was only going to be popular for so long. So you have to get the movie out quickly. And it just, it does feel like there is, at a certain point, you realize, oh, there's a concert tonight. We have to get to the concert. But that's like halfway through the movie when suddenly it's the day of the concert. And there does seem, there could have been one more pass at a script that just turned it into that day or set it up to where it was a clear line. And there's something very charming about the fact that it is mostly standalone scenes that all tie together. Some of like all the George Went scenes, you can tell they filmed all of those in a day. They're all the same. 
backing and everything else. And it's just one of those, I love that it is what it is. There's a part of me that's, no, but if I could go back in time and meet Snoopy, and after I met Snoopy, I would then say, hey, guys, can you just delay filming for a month and really work on that script and see what else we could do? Because I think there is a way, this was not forgotten. I think a lot of people think of this movie fondly or say, I should go back to that. But I feel like one of the reasons it hasn't had that full-on reconsideration is that it's it's really fun, but it's still hard to tell somebody who isn't in the mind space for us that like to defend it as no, it's actually really good. I don't know that it is really good. I just think it's really fun and does what it wants to do. I wish you just wanted to do it a little bit more tightly. That's it. Everything you said there is just so excellent because you really know the essence of this movie and then that it's you know, I always felt like vignettes that had it were missing something in the editing or like a major sequence that was kind of up towards the end. I see it kind of be like one feel. So when you said the thing about when I'll hold on to your VHS is yeah, where's like the after after films release of yeah. this? Where's the commentary track? One thing. First, I do believe that there's enough people who on the stats are wrong would buy this even in the time of drooling physical media. If you do like a real solid Blu-ray release, or God forbid, so that's just a bit of a bit of It'll be a really interesting uh, thing to put out there. But yeah, it's almost there. It's like 95% there, which is rather you're including the script that they're not such an excellent parent. Yeah, if they if they do pause. Yeah, I don't know if it's kind of the right thought, but that, that, you, you nailed it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think especially when you watch it so close to Josie, which is that. Josie is like perfectly tight and knows exactly what it's doing. And like this, you're like, oh, this is like the movie that Josie almost was if Josie didn't have a little more time to get to where it was. Yeah, Alamo Draft House or some rep with the West Tremor, Travis in background. She <laughs> really, I don't forget. I don't forget. This seems like an idea of the whole feature for me. The Spice Girls, I think, are all friends again. And this is the 25th anniversary. They should put it out there. Yeah, because apparently the 20th anniversary edition was released back in 2018, and it was an Australian release. So, what? That something is up with that. Maybe is it like because it's not all their music. Even their music might be owned by multiple. Because I think that was part of what drove Jerry away at one point. I think was just some of the songwriting and credit and all of that. I don't know if there's any of that left. Apparently, all of the songs that were Spice Girl songs in here were being written while the movie was being done. Because this is their second album. It's called Spice World, but it's all one word. And then the movie is Spice World, two words. I keep getting confused. And if this is two words or one word, thank you. That explains it. Yes, that is why. And they didn't have songs yet. So they were writing and doing this at the same time. The pressure on them just the pressure overall, and especially because they were British stars. So you got those fucking tabloids and all the paparazzi over there. Oh, God, the British tabloids. And I'm sorry, not to offend any British people, but British people, why are you so obsessed with women's weight? Even more so than Americans. But they're like just that whole thing. And just to have been a a young, because they were young. I'm sure they were all a little older than they probably were presented as initially. I think that was always a thing of Jerry Hallowell was a couple of years older than the rest of them. But still, they were in their 20s. They were early 20s. They were babies. 
and they were just being thrust into paparazzi, taking pictures of them at the worst angles and calling them fat and then telling them they had eating disorders and that they were bad examples for little girls. And that was a whole other thing. And I was trying to figure out, because I thought there was a connection here. I don't know that there was, although there probably isn't a bigger cultural history, because they were marketed towards young girls. That was the idea. And some of their songs are about sex, but they're also, again, they're not offensive. They're all positive. They're all about taking charge. They're actually good songs for, for young women to hear. But there was a lot of... Oh, and the way they dress. Of course, they're dressed like this because this is the way you expect young women to dress at this time. And I was trying to like plot when Bratz dolls came out. Remember the Bratz dolls? They were like Barbie. They're like LOL dolls now. Yes, they were like presented as younger with the big heads and the big eyes and like even tinier clothing. And it felt in some ways, like when I looked, I remember the first time I saw a Bratz doll, I was like, oh, is that Spice Girls? Because I have Spice Girls dolls somewhere around here. I thought it was like a Spice Girls doll, realized it wasn't. And that you had this sort of age where you started sexualizing young women, but also punishing them for it and telling them they were terrible for doing that. And I don't think the Spice Girls in any way started that. I think it was just one more on that path to culture deciding how they felt about it. And it just cuts a weird little stepping stone there. It's really interesting to look at one of the uh, producers' careers, Barnaby Thompson, and just to see your questioning as far as the popularity of the kids in the hall. The movie before this that he produced was Brain Candy. Ah, Yeah, before that, Tommy Boy. Before that, Lassie. Before that, Wayne's World 2. Coneheads, Wayne's World. It's an interesting career because we have mentioned Wayne's World quite a few times during this episode. There's an alien connection with the alien scene in this movie, which I think is adorable. I will admit, before our Shadowless movie, I saw the video in it for Spanish Up Your Life, which is, I'm a big sci-fi guy. I was like, is this clips from a movie? Before I'd seen a trailer or anything, I'm like, no, but space girls make a science fiction movie. They go to space, like tomorrow. I'm like, yeah, because I actually love tomorrow, Mike. Like most franchises, it takes them a couple of installments to get to space. But had they done a Spice World two, it it could it had to be Spice World two out of this world. It writes itself, and then they go to space. They're playing a concert on the moon for a galaxy, and that's the whole thing. And it's Richard E. Grant, like with a helmet, and like he keeps fogging it up because he keeps getting all, and he's trying to smoke in the helmet. Ah, come on, Hollywood! You must money to make this film. Please. People demand it. Richard E. Grant. I mean, he's always been good, but there are certain roles where he just shines. And yes, he is so good in this movie. And apparently, he did it because, like, he had a teenage daughter who was like, "Dad." you need to do the Spice World movie. And he was like, all right. And he did it. And his daughter came to set every day. And I remember there was, I don't know if it was an oral history or just like an article about everything Spice a couple of years ago, probably for the anniversaries. And he was talking about it. And it sounded like he was still so fond of everything that some of his daughter stayed in touch with the Spice Girls. They would text each other years later. And just all of that were, I like when you watch a movie, the is goofy and fun and you realize oh no and they had fun making it which and it shows on screen which i appreciate yeah that's always appreciated to know those stories are just like oh yeah no they really got along or they became friends after this oh that's so sweet just to go back again to the bob spears thing just because 
I mean, I can't emphasize enough how, as like a British comedy nerd, the fact that they got here, which was it was it was a really real get because this was a high profile movie, and he was hot ass and absolutely fabulous at that point. That he already knows how to direct comedy, and I think he really knows how to elicit performances out of people. Yeah, it's a really good point because he's directing five women who are not film actresses who have to own that screen and have to be likable and have to have jokes land when they are not comedians. And he does an excellent job of, of getting those performances. Editing can only go so far, right? Obviously they're all extremely talented. Talent in singing and preferring does not necessarily overlap into doing comedy. Right. And I mean, the, the preferred season is like, anyway, Melbourne's is, I always go back and forth with my favorite Spanish girls. But I, I, I'm pretty sure they have been, and it, like, but we're all doing like film here, but like, she does some stuff with facial expressions and stuff, but that's like, really the next level. And I, again, I think like part of that is being coached properly, and part of that is just natural ability. And I think the fact that there's camaraderie and fun and a sense of, really, you have to think about them at this point in their career in their lives to be like, what is going on here? And you get either a chance to get really serious about it or have fun with it. And I think they really had fun with it. And that's the finished product. Yeah. Not to bum us out, but anything we can do to fix this. Currently on IMDb, do you know what the rating out of 10 is for Spice World? I'm going to say like three. I say one. It's 3.6 out of 10. Oh. I am not... And again, we've discussed in this episode, I'm not a critical guy. I'm not a, like, a Rotten Tomatoes guy. It's just like, but people, do you not like fun? And then, yeah, you see this in Queens, and the world exists, and the world exists, exist, but you know what else exists? The Spice Rods. The Joe and the Pussycats. Would you like to know what Transformers, Michael Bay's 2007's Transformers has on IMDb? Under today, seven? You're exactly right, 7.0. Yeah, of course. Of course. The score of Spice World. You were shouting out the director earlier, and I wanted to shout out the writer, Kim Fuller, who he's just done so many things over the years, worked a lot with Lenny Henry. He was all the way back on the original Not the Nine O'Clock News, so he worked with a lot of the folks from there. He wrote a movie that Mel Smith directed. He worked a lot with Tracy Ullman. So I did a Dwarf episode. Yeah. And he wrote from Justin to Kelly. I'm sure he was hot because it was probably like, hey, you can do this. You did Spice World. You have two weeks. Can you do it? But we're going to film it in one week. So hurry up. Yeah, I, I can't blame him for that. that. That seems like something that I would have seen, but I have not. I haven't seen it yet either. That or Glitter. I've actually never seen Glitter, which is shameful for me to say out loud because it by all means I should have. From Justin to Kelly is a movie that people probably think Spice World is. The people who do watch Spice World have, were like, oh, fuck, 3.0 on IMDb. That's more what from Justin Kelly is. It, it is a 3.6 movie. I, it probably has a higher rating than that, though. I'm curious. It was written. You could tell it was filmed very quickly with very few actors who were ever in front of a camera. It's one of those where you're like, this is like actively uncomfortable because you feel bad that everybody here is contractually obligated to do this and nobody wants to. But if as a camp thing, you have to give it a go at some point. I need to take that plunge. One of these days. <laughs> I, if you do an episode, I'll come back for it. For you, oh I would boy. do that. Wow. That's a sacrifice. Yeah. I would absolutely watch that. It, film. What is its rating? Oh, 
1.9, which is one of the lowest ratings I've ever seen on IMDb. So that has got to be probably on that list of lowest. Oh, wow. What an era. You want that era. You want early 2000s. You will find it in that movie. I want to thank my co-hosts, Emily and Chris, for joining me. Emily, what has been going on with you, ma'am? I co-host The Feminine Critique with the wonderful Christine Makepeace, who's been on this show many a time. We cover movies. We do a lot of different discussions. The last episode we put out, I'm actually really proud of. We did an episode that was all about us calling out our five scariest movies of all time for us personally. So going into what actually makes us scared and what movies have tapped into that of, of different eras and ages. And I think it was a pretty fun discussion. And Chris, how about you? I'm still doing the Sci-Fi Explosion, which is a comedy video show that I do online at twitch.tv slash sci-fi explosion. Experience the uh, wackiest moments in science fiction history. Things like the music video for Billy Ocean's Waterbury. Things like Nice Girls video for Space Up Your Life. And mostly it's just an exploration of how like, the sci-fi boom of the 70s and 80s leading up to today has impacted every aspect of our lives. And I'm also just wrote the introduction for a compilation of last comics from Archie, which you can buy in stores that's just length, and it's a little collection in it. But you can find me on the social media on the staff and at Sci-Fi Explosion. Thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the spice world. I'm a punk rock punk queen Brown paper magazine Hotter than you've ever seen Everywhere and in between I'm a ten ticket through ride Don't you wanna come inside? A five-star triple threat Hardest of the heart to get No one's little record that Can't see nothing but it yet Six hours and five long days For all your lives to come undone Your late night hair brush, ace high royal flush, red velvet orange crush. You just don't impress me much. A glossy double cover spread, opened up inside your.